Hello, my name is Dave Lewis, and I'm the host of Cinemillennials, a podcast where myself and another millennial watch a classic film that we haven't seen before, ranging from the early 1900s to the late 1960s, and discuss its significance and relevance in our world today. On today's episode of Cinemillennials, I'll be talking to film scholar and host of the Audiovisual Cultures podcast, Dr. Paula Blair, about Frank Capra's 1934 screwball comedy, It Happened One Night. Although it might not look all that much on the outside when googling or seeing the most famous clips from It Happened One Night, the film could easily be considered as one of the most influential and well-received comedies of all time. You could name any screwball or romantic comedy, whether it be films like His Girl Friday, The Philadelphia Story, Bringing Up Baby, When Harry Met Sally, to the comedies that we grew up on like Clueless, Ten Things I Hate About You, The Proposal, or surprisingly even Star Wars and Spaceballs, as I found out in the episode. You'll find a direct link from It Happened One Night. It Happened One Night follows the story of Ellen Andrews, a young heiress that daringly escapes from the clutches of her father in Miami, Florida, in order to reunite with her soon-to-be husband, King Wesley, in New York City. On her travels, Ellie soon encounters Peter Warren, a rough-and-tumble news reporter who just got fired. Peter recognizes Ellie and tells his boss he is the story of the year, hoping to regain his job. Initially at odds with each other, as their upbringings and personalities clash, the combination of their common desire to see the escape through, and the report they build on their journey slowly grows into something unexpected for both of them. So sit back, relax, and whatever you do, be careful when you're singing and driving on the road. Hi, Dr. Blair. What was the first film you saw in theaters, and what are your favorite films at the moment? Hey, Dave. It's great to be on with you today. I can't remember the first film I saw in the cinema. I was probably going to the cinema really very young, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I can't remember. It may well have been an animation Probably Disney. I definitely saw The Lion King and films like that, but I was going to the cinema way before. And um, it may have been a Warner Brothers animation. Those were amazing in the late yeah. 80s because I am from the 1980s, dear listener. What am I liking at the moment? I mean, I will I will have a go at most things. I'm a real aficionado for documentaries. I love mm-hmm. documentaries. I'll watch a documentary about nearly anything. But I have been quite rubbish at my film viewing in the pandemic. I have to say I've been watching a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your comfort so, show? Is that like your big kind of uh, thing that you're really into, Star Trek? It has become so, yes. I was never, I never watched Star Trek before. And it just became a pandemic project in the first lockdown we had here in the UK. Mm. Um my partner really wanted to just do all of TNG, mm-hmm. Next Generation. And I thought, oh, well, I'll give it a go. Sure, what else is happening? And <laughs> um, <laughs> that one starts really rocky and then it gets brilliant. And we just kept going and we're on Enterprise now. So okay, there you go. There we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never really got into Star Trek. I think my aunt like gave us one thing one time because she knew that we were. I have a twin brother. That's what I mean by us. Um, 
we uh we were really big into Star Wars and uh things like mm-hmm. that. And actually I think like you know what thinking about uh the movie we're talking about t- today, it happened one night, I can see a little mm-hmm. bit of Han Solo and uh Leia in That's our so two main characters. Um that. they're back and forth. The first question is almost always an answer of Lion King or another Disney movie equivalent. <laughs> no one has said any Warner movies yet. Like oh, what really? one of those animations were the ones that like really got you into movies then? All Dogs Go to Heaven. I loved that film when I was a kid. And the Fievel films weren't those yeah. Warners. I loved those Fievel films. Fievel Goes West, I think, was mm-hmm. one of them. Um, An American Tale, you know, about the wee mouse who's yeah. Russian. And yeah, oh, I love those films. And they're quite, when you look back at them as an adult, there's quite a lot of darkness in those mm-hmm. and they deal with death in a quite serious way. And I'm not sure. I think only recently we're starting to see films like that again, where you're getting animations for children that are taking death and tragedy really seriously. And, um, it's, and I, I think it's a really important issue because things do happen to kids as well, you know, so, right. um, just molly coddling them and having just nice princesses and unicorns and happy things happening all the time is a bit silly so it's good to have jeopardy and to to imagine what the more darker things in life can be like so i really connected with films like that from a young age right like and i think i think you make a great point that there are some things that are coming back into that theme of tackling hard things like death because Mm -hmm. When we grew up, there were harsh truths and realities that were being put across to kids. What were your experiences watching classic films before? Did you have any favorites? Oh, I've got so many, Dave. You're going to have to shut me up. (laughs) (laughs) Because I mentioned, I think I was watching movies and consuming movies from a really young age. And I was going to the cinema a lot as a kid. Cinema is quite a big deal in Northern Ireland, where I come from. And I grew up in Belfast. I I was very lucky to have a cinema down the road from me, the Strand Arts Centre, as it's called now. And I went a lot as a child, and I watched movies on TV a lot as a child. And, um, you know, I fell in love with films like Back to the Future on television because it was probably in the later 80s when that was on television for the first time. And, um, you know, that was a really fundamental film for me. It's probably still one of my favorites and uh, a film that will have to come up today as well. Films like Spaceballs, um, mm. because <laughs> that's that's something that's pretty fundamental um, when we're talking about the film we're going to focus on in a bit. I think in terms of classical films, that's interesting because I think I've always had quite an eclectic taste. I am, mm-hmm. I think I'm a cinephile in the sense of I, I will watch nearly any movie. You know, I'll mm-hmm. give nearly anything a go. And I really do love early films. And I can't really remember um, a point where I started watching older films. But definitely as a teenager, I was watching a lot of early black and white Hitchcocks nice. and charlie chaplin films i'm i'm quite a big fan of chaplin's films whatever you think of the man personally he he was an incredible filmmaker my grandfather used to love the laurel and hardy films oh, and i would watch those with him that's my that's my jam right there that those are my yeah. my, my favorite boys <laughs> <laughs> so you know i had quite a nice diet of that and my dad was really into science fiction. So I had quite a balance of uh, more contemporary science fictions from the 70s, 80s, 90s and so on. 
I had a, a quite interesting taste and then I think just as my film education expanded because as you mentioned um you know I did a bachelor's degree then a master's and a PhD in film and visual culture so cinema is something that's just been really fundamental in my life and I've just always expanded my film viewing you know I think any film that you watch is expanding your knowledge mm-hmm. so I'll give anything a go. So I love finding older films. So I'm really interested in this project that you've got with Senate Millennials because when I was teaching film, I was really encouraging my students to watch older films and I would program quite a lot of older films for them to watch. Um, some of the films that you've already covered, like M, for example, and Metropolis. And uh, I think some of those films are really fundamental because they push the boundaries of the technologies as they were developing so they're hugely important even in terms of just the technological evolution of the medium so like I could ha- I could just blather on all day about this stuff Dave so <laughs> I don't want to I, I don't want to bore your listeners <laughs> no this is not um, boring at all this is fascinating I mean yeah it's a great stepping off point to learning more about our world and our the world's history mm-hmm. it happened one night is a great peek into the world pre-World War II. People say, oh, it's a comedy, but there's a lot of different levels to It Happened mm-hmm. One Night thematically, and we'll get into that later. What did you know about It Happened One Night before watching the film? Well, so I think we should be transparent with your listeners because I've gone a little off pace with what you normally do. <laughs> I've seen this film once before, a few years ago. And it was my suggestion to, to do this one because I, I did. I just had a feeling you this was one you'd get a lot out of. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's really becoming apparent. And we'll we'll talk about all of that soon. I think just on the back of what you're saying, I will answer your question in a moment. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no I do this. I go on tangents. But definitely, even if people don't feel it's important, mm-hmm. it's significant in that so many cultural references from the more contemporary periods will make much more sense once you've seen this film. The thing that <laughs> the thing that I really got out of seeing this was, as I mentioned earlier, Spaceballs is a real favorite of mine. And <laughs> this film is the plot of Spaceballs. What? So it is. If you haven't seen Spaceballs before, uh, if you're not sure about it, so I'm hoping you're familiar at least with Mel Brooks, who is probably more famous for Blazing Saddles. Mm. Um, but Spaceballs is along those lines, and it's a, a genre film. It's mostly a send up of Star Wars yeah. and a little bit of Star Trek in there, and there's a little bit of Alien in there, and some other popular culture references that mostly Americans will get. Mm-hmm. But it happens one night forms the basis of the plot of Spaceballs. I had no idea. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) I I didn't realize that until I watched It Happened One Night and then boom, everything just revealed itself because Spaceballs is a film I watched on hard rotation as a child (laughs) and I still love it. I can, it's one of my comfort films. I still can just stick it on and go to a happy place when I watch it (laughs) because it's John Candy, it's Bill Pullman, there's robots. It's great. Um, Joan Rivers as a robot with a virgin alarm. It's fantastic. Rick Moranis as Dark Helmet. And, you know, it's just it's just such a great movie. Um, So that was the big thing I got out of it. If you're expecting something very lofty because I have a PhD, you're not going to get this, (laughs) my friends. You're going to get an absolute gush about how this has revealed so many things about popular culture later on. And Mel Brooks is so knowledgeable. 
mm-hmm. about film history. And you think when uh, Spaceballs came out, I think it was 88 around then, so late 80s. So it's so uh, it happened when they came out in 1936. Mm-hmm. So that film's about 50 years old when Spaceballs goes into production. And it just underpins that whole film. But also there is a riff on... The Wizard of Oz in Spaceballs mm. as well. You know, it's just full of movie references and they're really quite cleverly done too. So I think if you're interested in cinema at all, it's such a learning experience to see where these more contemporary things and where pastiches really come from. The more you see from the earlier period, the more you will understand today. You know, this is I've actually used Spaceballs as an example of this with students before in the classroom because it refers to so many movies and so many genres as well, not just science fiction, but this romantic comedy element. Um, as you mentioned, you know, there's a real Han Solo, Princess Leia thing mm-hmm. going on. And that's really what Mel Brooks picked up on when you and the characters of Lone Star and mm-hmm. Princess Vespa. <laughs> and, um, they're played by Bill Pullman and Daphne Saniga. And they have that sparring, that screwball type thing yeah. where you have that fast paced comedy. You have this willful woman who, because we think of the 1930s and we just think of The Handmaid's Tale or something. Right. And that's not what it was at all. And a lot of ways, actually, we've actually regressed in terms of women's right. liberation, I think. And uh, we're clawing it back again. But the 1930s, you're seeing these really powerful women. Because another film I suggested to you as well was Bringing Up Baby. It's one yeah. of my favorites. And that's Catherine Hepburn at her absolute best sparring uh, with Cary Grant. It's and my girlfriend's favorite movie. <laughs> such a good film. And um, so you've got Claudette. Colbert here playing Ellie and Clark Gable as Peter and it happened one night and these are the original couples that set that sort of thing up those sparring matches and if you think that these are relatively early in terms of sound cinema mm-hmm. this is within 10 years of the talkies really yeah. so there's been quite a rapid development of that and to come up with these really sharp shooting scripts where they're just bouncing off each other. It's clipping along. Uh, they're so fast-paced. This bucks all the trends. You know, this bucks all the ideas that all oh, these old black and white movies are all slow and pedestrian right. and boring. They're actually really fast-paced, and you have to go, what? What just happened? And that's what it happened when I meant to me when I saw it. I, I, I just stumbled across it. And then, and it wasn't just Spaceballs. It was... There, you know, I was a big fan of Daria as a teenager, oh, the, right, yeah. the MTV cartoon. And there's an episode of Daria called It Happened One Nut. And the premise of that episode picks up a little bit from the film and riffs in it a tiny bit as well, where Daria is put in a situation with Kevin, the meat-headed football player. They have to work in close quarters together, you know, so... It's not just other movies. There's just other areas of popular culture where this film keeps cropping up. And, you know, it's a real prototype for a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of innuendo. We're in the Hayes Code era and there's a lot of innuendo. There's a lot of very tongue-in-cheek 
sexual innuendo going on in this movie. So I think probably as we talk about things in more detail, it will come through. I only knew about a few things going into it happened when I, because it was the first time I saw it. Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert. Everybody knows the famous cab calling scene and that it won Best Picture. And then I mm-hmm. think I also knew because I'm a massive Lord of the Rings fan. It Happened One Night was the title holder of winning everything and had mm-hmm. the best record for years and years and years until Titanic and then Lord of the Rings. It's known as that within those types of fields. Mm-hmm. You could probably argue that It Happened One Night could be one of the most influential films of all time. You could really make an argument as it being one of the most influential film of all time. With And it's funny because... Both the actors were kind of like, oh, this is going to be the worst movie ever made when they were making it (laughs) or by the end of them making it. I think they both said at one point, they're like, I think Clark Gable said, oh, let's get this thing over with. And Mm -hmm. then Clark basically told a friend, this is the worst movie I ever made. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. why this was made. But what did you think of the film overall? You kind of went into it a little bit. Who were your favorite characters? I have a great affection for this film. I think it's important to note that it is from the 1930s and there are some things that I don't think we'd, we would accept anymore. Yeah. There's parts of dialogue that are just really not okay and it gets a little bit violent. Setting those things aside and giving it some, not really license, but just, okay, 1930s. I don't, I don't know. I think, I think I just enjoy the pace of it and I... Right. It's interesting because I don't necessarily sympathize with any of the characters, but I think because they throw themselves into it and they're acted so enthusiastically. So it's interesting that you say that these actors weren't too bothered about it. They were just trying Mm -hmm. to get it over with. Maybe that's where the pacing comes from in part. Um, But I really enjoy the scenes where they're play acting. Um, They pretend, you know, they're pretending to be a married couple who is fighting to right. make the police go away. Detectives. Oh, that's father at work. Peter, what do I do? What do I do? Maybe I can jump out of the window. They won't see me. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I got a letter from Aunt Bella last week. Uh, she says if we don't stop over in Wilkes-Barre, she'll never forgive us. What are you talking about? Uh, the baby's due, due next month. They want us to come. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, she saw your uh, sister on the street the other day. Says she's looking swell. Come in. You know, I hope Aunt Bella has a boy, don't you? Grandma says it's going to be a girl, though. She hasn't missed calling one in years. Man here to see your sweetheart. Who, me? You want to see me? What's your name? Are you addressing me? Yeah, what's your name? Hey, wait a minute. That's my wife you're talking to. What do you mean, come here? What do you want, anyway? We're looking for somebody. Yeah, well, look your head off. But don't come busting in here. This isn't a public park. I got nurse to take a sock at you. Take it easy, son. Take it easy. And these men are detectives, Mr. Moore. I don't care if they're the whole police department. They can't come busting in here shooting questions of my wife. Now, don't get too excited, Peter. The man just asks you civil questions. Oh, is that so? Say, how many times have I told you to stop butting in when I'm having an argument? Well, you don't have to lose your temper. You don't have to lose your temper. That's what you said the other time, too. Every time I try to protect you. The other night at the Elf's dance, when that big Swede made a pass at you. He didn't make a pass at me. I told you a million times. Oh, no, I saw him. Kept pawing you all over the dance floor. He didn't. You were Yeah, well, it's 
Too bad you're looking for a plumber's dollar. Quick dollar! Quick dollar! I told you they were a perfectly nice married couple. just that they can riff off each other and there's chemistry and it's setting up that odd couple and opposites attract type thing which we probably would think of as a bit toxic now but Mm. this is something that shapes just all of romantic comedies for such a long time in the 20th century and Clark Gable he's I mean he's Clark Gable you know he's (laughs) absolutely stunning He's got such charisma. Claudette Colbert is, I hate using this word, but she is, she's feisty. She doesn't give up. She is autonomous. Yes, she needs lots of help, but she also takes care of herself. She is quite rounded as a character. And it's kind of the poor little rich girl story. But at the same time, it's, yeah, I'd love to be a plumber's daughter because maybe I'd be allowed to do something I wanted to do instead of being told what to do all the time. And it's a bit of this is a very privileged person learning some humility and who doesn't love that story? You know, so there's a lot of problems, but there's comedy comes out of these problematic things of lack of consent and just going behind people's backs and there's lots of subterfuge but it's quite um it's just ballsy it's confident it's in your face and it takes you along for the ride it's telling you i'm a film i'm a i'm a load of nonsense i'm a work of fiction you don't have to believe any of this it's Mm -hmm. all total nonsense you know we've gone big with these characters for a reason you know this is a totally outlandish scenario that you can just let wash over you for an hour 40 minutes in the cinema and i think i like the audacity of the whole thing if that makes sense yeah no i like i like that description too it's just like the audacity is such a great word and calling it ballsy is just that is such an apt description because it really is as you were saying before people think oh black and white movies they're boring they're stupid they're not appealing to our generation This movie has a lot of guff and a lot of balls, like you said. It's just so interesting to see how people classify black and white film as a whole as boring or it's not interesting or there's nothing back and forth when reality, the films that we are enjoying today and even more so, like when they go back and forth, a lot of people like that back and forth and they think it's, oh, it's a good thing. And I I like that you brought up how a lot of this movie, there are a lot of bad things that we would not accept Mm -hmm. today. But at the same time, we're able to still empathize with these characters despite the negative Mm. connotations of their day. And we can understand their humanity underneath it all. One of the most important scenes and the real turning point for the film and Ellie and Peter's relationship is the scene in which there is a poor boy. His mother passes Mm. out because they've been hungry for a long time. And Ellie just takes Peter's money gives it to him right away and is like, mm-hmm. please don't go hungry. Please do this. And the whole kind of connotation, she's a rich girl. She's giving away this money. She doesn't care about the money. She cares about the heart and the mm-hmm. truth of the world and the good things in the world and trying to help. Ah, what's the matter with you? Oh, somebody help us. Something's Don't worry. She'll be all right. Nanny, something's 
What happened to your money? Oh, I spent it all in the tickets. We didn't know it was going to be so much. <laughs> we shouldn't have come, I guess. <laughs> but Martha said there was a job waiting for her in New York. And if we didn't go, she might lose it. She'll be all right when she's had something to eat. Here, here, honey. The next town we come to, you buy some food. Now, come on. I shouldn't ought to take this. Mom'll get mad. Just don't tell her anything about it. You don't want her to get sick again, do you? No, but you might need it. Come on. I got me. Come on. Come on. On top of that, when people watch this movie, it's the 1930s. A lot of people are still escaping. Mm -hmm. This are are escaping the you know economic downturn of the 1920s mm -hmm. and 30s, the crash and everything like that. People are still reeling from that, and to mm -hmm. see that humanity within this little boy, and then even more so the the humanity later, where Peter is explaining his desire to, to see this island in the Pacific, explaining how beautiful and gorgeous it is, and you know how and how he feels so at peace with home and humanity in the world in that place and how he wants to take the woman he loves there. I saw an island in the Pacific once. Never been able to forget it. That's where I'd like to take her. She'd have to be the sort of a girl who would jump in the surf with me and love it as much as I did. You know, nights when you and the moon and the water all become one, and you feel you're part of it, something big and marvelous. Uh, that's the only place to live. Well, the stars are so close over your head, you feel you could reach up and stir them around. Certainly, I've been thinking about it. Boy, if I could ever find a girl who was hungry for those things. Take me with you, Peter. Take me to your island. I want to do all those things you talked about. You'd better go back to your bed. I love you. Nothing else matters. But we can run away. Everything will take care of itself. Please, Peter. I can't let you out of my life now. I couldn't live without you. <laughs> and I think that is such a beautiful thing because both of these characters are super abrasive and Ellie is often bratty and like the rich girl, everything goes my way or the highway type of thing. Um, to a certain degree, but then at the same time, she does have that humanity. Peter just wants the money the, for the reward at first, and then he changes over time where he's able to understand, okay, maybe I understand Ellie now. Maybe despite being at political odds or despite being at different ec economical upbringings, I can still understand her humanity. And it is really very funny, fast-paced. There's things back and forth, but at the same time, they end up seeing their humanity and who they are. And that's how we are able to see everything goes on. There's so many different iconic scenes throughout this movie. And I think those are the two scenes that should be more iconic than the other famous scene, which is the one that you can see 
on every academy montage or every film 101. And I kind of want to see your perspective on this, mm-hmm. where Ellie hails a cab because Peter's mm-hmm. too proud of the way that he's trying to do it. And she's like, all right, well, we're, we're never going to cab that way. So she lifts up her skirt and reveals her leg. I suppose nobody stops for us, huh? They'll stop, all right. It's all a matter of knowing how to hail them. Oh, and you're an expert, I suppose. Expert? I'm going to write a book about it called The Hitchhiker's Hail. There's no end to your accomplishments, isn't there? Well, you think it's simple, huh? No, no. Well, it's simple. It's all that old thumb, see? Yeah. Now, some people do it like this. Or like this. All wrong. Never get anywhere. Oh, the poor thing. Yeah, boy, but that old thumb never failed. It's all a matter of how you do it, though. You know, now, you take number one, for instance. That's a short, jerky movement like this. That shows independence. You don't care whether they stop or not. You got money in your pocket, see? Clever. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but number two, that's a little wider movement. Smile goes with this one like this. That means you got a brand new story about the farmer's daughter. Mm-mm. You figured that out all by yourself, Yeah, that's nothing. Number three, that's a pit. Yeah, that's a pitiful one. You know, when you're broke and hungry, everything looks black. That's a long, sweeping movement like this. Gotta follow through, though. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's no good, though, if you haven't got a long face to go with it. Here comes the car. Okay, now watch me. I- I'm gonna use number one. Keep your eye on that thumb, baby, and see what happens. I still got my eye on the thumb. Something must have gone wrong. Oh. Try number two. When you get to a hundred, wake me up. anything but you. I'll stop a car and I won't use my thumb. What are you going to do? It's a system on my own. Why do you think that has been seen as so iconic and not the other scenes that really talk our collective humanity? That's a good question. Probably just comes down to sex cells and mm. they couldn't put very much sex in the film because it's under the code at this point. Which I think something, uh, again, to you know, that's quite important to elaborate on is the amount mm. of sex that's in it for there not being any sex in it. Yeah. Um, that's one of the examples is her showing her leg and it's very likely a body double because she's out of shot when most of that's happening. Um, actually, the funny thing is, not to interrupt you, it's actually yeah, sure. her leg. Is it? It's really it's, her? It's really her leg because she apparently they had a body double. Oh. And she's like, 
all right, that woman's legs are not my legs. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so she, she did the scene herself. But Well, there we go. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's a comedy set piece where, you know, mm-hmm. he's trying, because he does these elaborate things. He's a journalist and he's writing all these books about all these things that he has all this knowledge of that he's not going to do and one of them is the hitchhiking and he goes through these elaborate how to wave your thumb properly and this is what this one means this is what this one means this is what this one means Mm -hmm. and some of them are actually well at least one of them is quite sexually charged as well really yeah because one of them again it's a an equivalent of blinking you miss it It, and this one is that means you got a brand new story about the farmer's daughter so there's just constant innuendo And she goes, well, I'll just, you know, without saying it overtly, she'll go, I'll use my feminine wiles is what she's getting at, meaning her legs. And this is at a time when women's skirts are getting higher and higher and higher. You know, even just seeing ankles is still a fairly big deal. We've had the 20s and skirts starting to rise and rise. Mm -hmm. And so in the 30s then, Pulling the skirt up right up the upper thigh, that's a pretty big deal. Under the Hayes Code as well, that's a pretty big deal. So it's quite a quick shot as well. It's quite a short duration of a shot. You just get enough of an eye fill to get a sense of what the driver is feeling when he stops for them. And it's become very stereotypical, I think. I mean, I don't know how people would have responded at the time, but of course, this longer bigger narrative of that's all women are good for the sort of virgin whore dichotomy it's not helping it's it's helping to build that it's constructing that is that's what pretty girls are for probably now you wouldn't so much get away with that i mean i've seen so many films even in more recent times even in the 2000s where they're still doing something that's equivalent to that a woman flashing her breasts for example to get alcohol or whatever and it's quite boring now mm-hmm. because it's so overdone after me too i think films made since then it's just not acceptable anymore right. you would have the woman doing something clever <laughs> to to get something you know or, or you're looking a certain way with their clothes or a body language or something not flashing uh, which is essentially what's happening in that scene it's one of those where we look back and we go, that's where we were. <laughs> Let's try yeah. not to go back there. <laughs> uh, 100%. And it's like, I mean, because I was thinking about that, like, I, I've seen this forever and ever, not realizing mm-hmm. what the context of the movie, not even knowing what the movie was. It's one of those things that are constantly being called iconic. Whereas I think of film in a way of trying to understand through the medium of visuals and sound. It's the perfect art for me where it's just like, it really reveals what we're trying to say within that moment about our humanity and how we can be better for the world in some cases, in some cases not. Like, this is how we're regressing. I think you're absolutely right. It's like the whole idea of sex sells. And even today, unfortunately, that is a thing that is still around. This is the origin of the screwball comedy, a lot of people say. And this and bringing a baby, as you said before. There's an idea about what happened to the movies of the early 2000s, the comedies, romantic comedies, uh, like I Love You Man and 40 Year Old Virgin and things like that. Like what happened to those movies? Like where are the like, quote unquote, really, according to these people, good comedies? And I think that could be down to like some of the reasons that you just said that we're just not accepting of those kind of ideas anymore. And I think a lot of the stuff from the early 2000s are just really 
gross and inappropriate, especially in this world's climate right now. Not only in this world's climate, just but even before, like a lot of it was just I don't want to say pushing boundaries as in the good way of pushing boundaries was it was just kind of on the edge of, oh, I'm being edgy kind of thing. And I think that idea that's being pushed back against now because people being edgelords or people being too edgy now is just like you're trying too hard or you're trying to get a reaction out of people. With a lot of the things that happened in one night, we're trying to get reactions out of people. But a lot of it is kind of in that idea of this is just a movie for fun. And at the same time, there are some issues here that underneath, you know, within the characters' motivations and things like that, there are some real things. A lot of that people misinterpret like fun for being, oh, it's silly. Oh, it's like trying to get a reaction out of people. But at the same time, you're not trying to get that out, especially within the writing here. I don't know all the context at the time either um, with every joke or innuendo, whereas people would know that now. But I think it's like interesting how people perceive things back then versus now. And Comedy is changing because of people's sensibilities. And I think that's a good thing because a lot of it is more about being more sensitive towards other people rather than being, okay, this is what the comic is saying about everybody. And we just want to hear what the comic says and nothing else. Probably a point of that is about audiences, I would guess. It's not an area I'm hugely knowledgeable about, but Mm -hmm. I would guess that this is a time where you would be getting couples going to the movies in the 30s, probably a predominantly male audience, but you would be getting a lot of women. Uh, Women were cinema goers right from the start. They were a big chunk of the audience. So some of this is for them. You Clark Gable is for them. As much as Claudette Colbert showing her legs is for... We actually do get Clark Gable undressing. He goes quite far before Ellie runs out of uh, and moves the shot away from him. We're talking about a very heteronormative world here as well. Um, right. you know, there is a little bit for the ladies too, with a bit of Clark Gable flesh going on. You know, so there is a tiny bit of balance there. But yeah, I think it's it's audiences, and I think being in tune to the audiences. I suspect what you're talking about is you in the early 2000s were on the back of a post-feminist wave, mm-hmm. and I feel like there was a real regression. There was a real pull back there was a resistance to Mm -hmm. feminism and we're seeing feminism coming through a lot more strongly now in the 2020s in a sort of counter balance to regression that i think happened it's audiences it's filmmakers having to go oh wait uh oh women watch films as well (laughs) and other types of film uh people watch movies and we like them to pay to see our movies so maybe we should not insult them and leave them out of stuff as much anymore so yeah i think there's a lot less tolerance to that stuff it just comes down to well what's funny because this film it happened one night there's a lot of stuff that you're laughing at and you're going oh wait that's not that's not really funny or acceptable (laughs) but because of the way it's been done and because of its time it is quite funny and you have to go okay you know and you feel bad about yourself because you're you're looking at it through a 21st century lens Mm -hmm. and there's just so much that we wouldn't accept anymore and it just tips over a bit too much into a more violent place but in its own context you go oh okay yeah i can see why that was hilarious i guess (laughs) but but, you know but there is there's enough i think that is properly funny i mean when they're sparring it's so fast and 
the characters are quick. You know, the writing obviously is quick, but the delivery of it and the characters are quick and they're quick witted and they're resourceful and they're coming across all these scraps because it, it is a road movie, but it's a, it's a very stilted road movie, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In that they're constantly interrupted on their journey and they're trying to get somewhere and this other thing happens and there's a big mishap and then they, or they have a musical number and it distracts the driver and they end up in a ditch. So they, <laughs> this other thing happens and they have to run out. You know, there's constantly a set of conflicts that they have to resolve and get over and then start the journey again and so there's these pauses throughout their journey where they get to know each other and that's where so much of the comedy comes from is how they deal with the adverse situation Mm -hmm. in which they find themselves and the arguments that they have are there's some some dialogue that aren't very nice but the feeling of it is actually quite good natured and you're annoying me but i'm falling in love with you but you're really annoying me is kind of the tone of it <laughs> it's like that kind of thing where it's just like people are at odds with each other that's what we have as a major archetype now that it has that idea and i think again going back to the early 2000s there are points in popular culture where fads get boring and people don't want to listen to that stuff anymore it's the whole archetype that people are making fun of now like there's a thing that there's a couple of irish creators talking about how every Irish romantic comedy is basically the same thing. It's like some American girl who has this great <laughs> job and she's so very strict and she's very focused on her career. And then somehow there's some like mythical, crazy, silly <laughs> thing that, oh, like like Leap Year is the like most ridiculous movie I've ever seen about Ireland. And oh, and then he's like a farmer or something like that. Well, Ireland is so backwards and doesn't make any <laughs> sense to American people. And uh, all this other stuff. Um, yeah, there's McDonald's there. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just really interesting, like how you have that thing still going on, but at the same time, people are just going to get tired of it. We've mm-hmm. had it for, however, almost like a hundred years now with this mm-hmm. film, and people get tired of popular culture tropes after a while. Like, it just is like the same thing as people are getting tired of some memes now, and mm-hmm. it's like the same thing, and how those kind of things eventually it'll come back, but. You know, right now, I think the evolution of the screwball comedy or the romantic comedy, I don't know if it's still a thing or if it's just the idea of people are coming from two different sides and they're bickering, bickering. And I think it really just depends on the writing and the performance. Like you said, I mean, the performances that we get here are great because they do feel real. They do feel grounded. And while you said Peter and Ellie, they're both very abrasive. Mm-hmm. And they're not I don't think I would ever want to like hang out with them because I don't think they're the nicest people in the world. At the same time, you still mm-hmm. fall for them, their charm, their kindness in situations, because I think maybe it is that balance of, oh, they seem kind of like up into their own kind of egos. But at the same time, you know, they do have flashes and they are brilliant flashes of humanity and love and goodness. What were the major themes that spoke to you? I suppose the things that jump out to me are the economics, as you've mentioned before. And I think for me, it's the smaller things that I notice, because I think there's a lot bubbling under the surface quite a lot mm-hmm. as well. And in ter- and I think I quite like the journey. You know, I quite like the that it's a bit of a road movie. You, know, you don't necessarily see America, but you hear quite a bit of this journey from south to north that they're doing from Miami to New York. 
as somebody who's never been to the Americas, I lap that kind of thing up. So it's, <laughs> you know, I suppose sort of thematically, there's not really a lot interesting I can say, but there's things like that that I find really striking, you know, that I just personally I find really interesting because right. it helps me learn a little bit more about the geography of this massive continent that I may <laughs> never get to. <laughs> um, oh, come on over. You'll, you'll be welcome anytime. I'll give you a tour of New York and everything. I'm not too far oh, away. so close. The geography of their journey really fascinates me and how things develop and change as they move from, you know, they, they're in Miami, then they're in Jacksonville, they're in Philadelphia, and they're in New York. And we first meet Ellie on a yacht in Miami. And it's something I really loved in the opening that I didn't pay attention to before but I really paid attention when I watched it this morning was the credits you know I love the older films because they've yeah. got lovely credits and the music at the beginning that you don't normally see till much later on and today and if you notice there it's a series of mapped paintings of mm-hmm. the location they're telling you where you're starting the film so you're seeing backdrops of palms and Spanish moss and so you're already being told you're in a southern location. Then you get the yachts on the marina and then you get the film opening on a shot of a, the yacht on the water. You know, And that's where you meet Ellie for the first time. And she's locked herself and she's on this hunger strike because she mm-hmm. she's married this guy on a whim. And she's defying her father and the crew is terrified of her. So there's so much characterization happening mm-hmm. in the first beats of the film. So rather than theme, it's how the film is constructed is probably what I'm trying to get at. You know, there are themes that are really interesting. They're uh, to do with the economics of these characters. But it feels quite, you know, I think because it's older and because we've seen it a lot since, as I say, poor little rich girl, you know, we've seen right. we've seen this done to death. It's interesting and there's still more to say. But, you know, we're seeing stories about privileged people trying to break free and have a nice life and when you cut it down like that it's quite boring now I've seen that movie a million times but when I look at how the film's constructed and how it sets up her personality and the location how it situates everything and also the technologies involved because the guy that she's married who is called King Wesley played by Jameson Thomas I think his name was and mm-hmm. um you know this is this is somebody who's a, an older man and it's the first burst of freedom that she's had from her father because she's had this habit of running away and just you know having a rebellion and so this is a, a moment of rebellion for her is that she's married this man but she hasn't had any time alone with him so the marriage hasn't been consummated and her father's talking about getting it annulled he's not happy about the marriage Autonomy and lack of autonomy. There's a conflict going on between Ellie trying to break free and she Mm -hmm. breaks free and spends her time with other men who are just going to constrain her in a different way. Yeah, I think when, when you pick it all apart like that, there's there's a lot going on. But then you also have, you know, this idea that you brought up that I find so fascinating because Frank Capra is one of my favorite directors. You know, you have this idea that Frank Capra puts across. Was this the first Frank Capra film that you've seen? Like, were you aware of his idealized version of America or otherwise known negatively as Capricorn? Um, (laughs) Is this your American experience with film? Oh, it's probably part of it. I mean, I feel like I've gotten to know 
America through film and television mm-hmm. very much. Frank Capra, I think he's a director that I've only started to pay more attention to more recently, mm-hmm. but I've seen loads of his films. It's one of those where you've seen the film, but you didn't necessarily know who directed it. I've, right. So I've seen a lot of his films without realizing I've seen a lot of his films until I bothered to look and see who directed them. No, it wouldn't be the first film of his that I've seen, but probably I'm just paying a bit more attention now to that. For a lot of us who maybe don't have and you know it's probably relevant the economic means to do that kind of travel for me it's transatlantic travel Uh, the only reason I've never been to the United States is because I've never been able to afford to go to the United States there's so many many places I'd love to visit and it's a way for people like me to get to know America is Mm -hmm. through the culture that it exports to the rest of us in America, everyone thinks of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is Frank Capra. Mm. Everybody thinks of It's a Wonderful Life, probably yeah. even more so. Just, yeah. you know, that's probably one of my favorite films of all time, It's a Wonderful Life. And he has that very idealized version of the United States mm. and its culture and what it should be about. And it's more about the people that make up the United States rather than, you know, this idea of preserving freedom. And he wants personal freedom for everybody. And he wants the underdog to win. He wants the this idea of economic inequality, I think, is a massive thing, not only within it happened one night, but mm-hmm. within his whole filmography. He is constantly exhibiting this idea of economic inequality and how it restricts our freedoms and how the rich guy is often the bane of the existence of the working class and how so much so after It's a Wonderful Life, Capra was branded as a communist was very close to being blacklisted uh, Mm -hmm. for a while. And some people argue that he might have been. You can see this idea throughout the film. At first, Peter's like, oh, this is just like, you know, a spoiled brat rich girl. He calls her a brat all the time Mm -hmm. and often talks about how terrible her father is with his policies. We can connect to that now. What the previous generations have done for us with the consequences, not caring about the consequences, whether it be housing crises, you can see that. And especially we can understand where you have these ultra rich magnets now. Once again, we have these guys that continue to hurt our society without Mm -hmm. any, any remorse or empathy. How are we as this generation supposed to find the common humanity with those people when the money that they receive from those actions that they do are often cruel and have taken their humanity away? And I think in a way, part of this is like saying that through their connections of love, Peter and Ellie, they have found a way to go past that to a certain degree. Yeah, we're, you know, as you mentioned, you know, 1936, people are still clawing their way back from a major economic downturn. Well, doesn't that sound familiar to us today from 2008, you know? So, and as you say, with the, the, the billionaires that are hoarding their money, this is a really interesting thing I find about the United States as well is that socialism still seems to be a bad word. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a not very nice concept and you have to find ways of, having socialist ideals without being socialist you know you have to be a tiny bit capitalist just to get away with being a little bit socialist over there you know it's the impression that I get from you know a lot of podcasts I listen to and try and keep up with yeah it's really interesting time on uh, where people are under the radar and as you say you know the McCarthy witch hunts are going to be around the corner in 20 years you know less than 20 years time we mentioned Chaplin already or Chaplin was somebody who yeah. got exiled you know he he got tricked into leaving the country and he was never allowed back to the United States so 
it was a very troubling time. It was quite difficult as a creative as well, because the creatives were more likely to have those more humanitarian, egalitarian sentiments, you know, right. and so a lot of artists of all kinds were targeted, as as you were mentioning. So again, it's it's probably one of the areas where the film is actually being quite brave in how implicitly explicit it's being, I know, (laughs) Uh, in terms of sexuality uh, and economics and all of these things. You know, there's a lot of nuance in this film, for sure. Going back to Frank Capra a little bit, like his whole idea is, and this is a quote from him, the art of Frank Capra is very, very simple. It's the love of people. Mm. Add two simple ideals to this love of people, the freedom of each individual and the equal importance of each individual And you have the principle upon which I based all of my films. Mm. And you can tell that from watching this film, which is why I was asking you about Frank Capra and this idea. Because, I mean, when people think of Tom Hanks being America's dad or the epitome (laughs) of the all-American man in Hollywood, they're really thinking of Frank Capra and the things that he put into filmmaking. Mm. And with him... And the ideas that he puts across, mm-hmm. and I think while like the majority of his outlook on American life really does seem to be cheery, he also doesn't shy away from the gritty and problematic issues mm-hmm. that America faces at the time and unfortunately still faces today. Yeah. Like, as we said before, you know, the wealthy getting to do whatever they want, racism, entitlement, about what freedom really means in the United mm-hmm. States, especially today. And I think while, you know, again, he does have these things of, you know, a lot of it's like apple pie on the windowsill, small town America, it has that kind of thing. And that's why I thought I was like, okay, this would be an interesting question where of someone that has never been to the United States that has, you know, only seen stuff from movies and things like that. I think that's an interesting kind of perspective mm-hmm. where he is constantly being put across, across the world, Frank Capra and his films as this Americanized ideal or his ideas are what America should be idealized on. Now that you've seen It Happen One Night, we kind of talked about this earlier. Do you remember seeing any films or TV shows after its release that you can now see it, that it either referenced or was inspired by it? You Mm. blew my mind with the Spaceball thing. (laughs) But like I actually had it written down where it's Spaceball parodied the wedding scene at the end. But I was like, wait, now that you said it's the whole movie, I'm like, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. But yeah. I think Screwball in general, as we've talked about, tonally, there's there's just... Generally, there's lots of stuff. I think you know, just generally, it's it's pulsing through romantic comedies. Any kind of odd couple type scenario, I think, is going to come up. Um, I'm sure there's other films that reference it more directly as well. It's those are the only ones that are springing to mind for me at the moment. Um, could you think of any more, Dave? I mean, you also have films like Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy stopped a stagecoach using the same method as Ellie in Way Out West, which is one of their famous films. Uh Uh, Bandits, I've never heard of this film before, uses the blanket wall of Jericho. That, I suppose, makes everything quite all right. Well, this? Well, I like privacy when I retire. Yes, I'm very delicate in that respect. Prying eyes annoy me. Behold the walls of Jericho. Uh, Maybe not as thick as the ones that Joshua blew down with his trumpet, but a lot safer. You see, uh, I have no trumpet. Now, just to show you my heart's in the right place, I'll give you my best pair of pajamas. Uh, 
Do you mind joining the Israelites? You don't want to join the Israelites? And then probably one of the most famous ones is Sex in the City 2, where Carrie and Missy... I'm very uh, proud to say. Neither neither (laughs) of them. And you're going to be even more proud when I tell you that Carrie, or someone, I don't know the character, apparently does the famous hitching of her dress in the Middle East. And it's a character that has the whole full like garb and everything like uh, the hijab and everything like the i don't know i can't remember the actual full name of it they have someone calling a cab in that and i was just like why why would you do that like you already have a connotation with an older film that has you know already the misogyny and the sexualized tension of that why would you introduce that within the middle east like that is so inappropriate it is really inappropriate it's a totally different context and it's really inappropriate there's endless now that we've talked about <laughs> all the themes the editing the character the behind the scenes why do you think millennials and the younger generations should watch it happened one night because it would make a great double bill with space balls and that's what <laughs> in saturday night in i think <laughs> <laughs> i think that and then compare them and just have a laugh I'm being flippant, but I think all film knowledge is good knowledge and there's so much in this film. I think just everything that we've said and more that we probably haven't touched on, actually, there's Mm. probably loads of other stuff too, but all of those things, just probably coming back to your own point, Steve, just that human heart that's in there, because as much as, I mean, we've said a lot about, yeah, Peter, he, he says quite violent things sometimes. He steals a car. Um, you know, he does, he does quite horrible, ratty things, but he's fundamentally good. He does look after Ellie. He cares for her. He comes across that he's doing it unwillingly and begrudgingly, but he has real affection for her and Mm -hmm. he is impressed by her as much as he complains about her. He's impressed by her. And it is a getting to know you comedy as well, where he's decided who she is and then she proves him wrong and then he changes his opinion. So I think that's something that's probably quite important to point out that we maybe had glossed over a bit because we were focusing on maybe some more negative stuff, but yeah. and, And it's just, it's really good fun. I think if you can, Go in with an open mind that it's of a different time. It's very much of a different century. Just go in with it with a bit of heart and you bring to it what it will give back to you. Just focus on the really nice positive stuff and the fun stuff and the just the great screenwriting and direction and editing and acting that you're seeing and just enjoy it. I think it's really worth a go. It's really, really worth your time. I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion I had with Dr. Paula Blair about one of the most winningest and most influential comedies of all time. It happened one night. I had a great time talking with Paula and hope to have her on the show again sometime soon. If you want to check out more of my work and want to watch the film we discussed, you can find me at dlumoviereview.com, Classic Movie Hub, Best Classics Ever, and my own YouTube channel. Thank you.